All right, we are finishing up our series on covenants. Now, we're not done with the Alpha and Omega series. If you remember, we were doing, that's a whole Bible study, but we're, we're walking through God creates. We started in Revelation, seeing him as the Alpha and Omega that pushed us to the creation. So God creates. We walked through the first few chapters of Genesis and seeing that creation, seeing sin move it to chaos and seeing his promises to bring back the cosmos to, to move to new creation. Uh, and then we, we were able to study there, but then we moved to his covenant. So God covenants, and we're finishing that section today. Next week, we'll start with God commands, and we'll start looking at the law and what, what expectations are there for God's new covenant people. And that's really, that, that really brings us to the place where that is the focus of the study today is the new covenant people. We've seen Jesus as the inaugurator, the initiator, the faithful covenant partner, we saw that on Easter, then we looked at that covenant, that new covenant that's established or initiated, inaugurated in Christ's blood. We saw that prophesied from Jeremiah. Then last week we looked and saw that those promises uh, fulfilled in that new covenant are actually a fulfillment of all the covenants that come before. Uh, I don't know if everybody saw it or not, or if, if you had time to look at it, but just one of the ways that, that so often... We, I wrote on this and posted on Realm, I am covenant fulfillment statements. We study these, these things that Jesus said so often simply in light of a common, like just a Christian perspective. I am the bread of life. But in the context of that, Jesus is making a statement that he is the fulfillment of something and actually compares himself to the manna. He is a better manna. And every one of these I am statements are actually demonstrations of Jesus saying, I am the fulfillment of what, G, what, what your father, what the father in heaven has been promising all along. So we saw that. He's the fulfillment of these things. But now the question becomes, well, who are these covenant people? Every covenant between God and people have had a covenant people, even if the initial covenant is made with a person. For example, Adam and Noah, there is a covenant people. There is every person who will ever live who has ever been born of Adam or who has ever born in the line of Noah, which in case you didn't realize that, that's all of us because, you know, it started over with Noah. So, so we all have that lineage. The reality is, is that his covenants with those two men as the representatives, uh, they apply to everybody. So there's a covenant people, all people who have ever been created. Then the covenants with Abraham, Israel, and David they also had implications for more than just them. Like the covenant that God made with Israel at the mountain was not just for that generation. It was to be a covenant that lasted, that endured. But they broke it over and over. Every generation was guilty of not living up to the covenant. But there was implications. There was a covenant people. And even now, in the new covenant, there is a covenant people. Jesus is the initiator, the inaugurator. He is the faithful covenant partner. But there are implications for his covenant on a much broader group of people. So who are the people of the new covenant? That's really the question we're going to seek to ask or seek to answer uh, in this series today. Now, like last week, I could draw from, I mean, we could just read the New Testament because it's there, right? It's all over the New Testament speaking of this new covenant people. We could turn back to Jeremiah and look at Jeremiah's prophecy and look at Hebrews. In fact, we're going to draw on those two today and, and study the, the statement of the new covenant and the prophecy of it and the fulfillment of it. We could study that and begin to understand and glean some insight into who the new covenant people are. But in an effort to show you that this isn't all just coming from one place, I'm not even going to, I really wrestled, I wanted to preach from Ephesians this morning, that place that I, I will read some verses from it today, but, but I, don't, I want you to see that this is a biblical perspective. It's not Seth, it's not just me drawing a few of my favorite passages, but there are scripture all over that show us who the new covenant people are. And so we're going to turn to another of my favorites, First uh, Peter chapter 2, um, and and. Then we're going to look at all kinds of supporting passages to answer this question. So if you've got your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. We'll pray, we'll dig in, and seek to answer the question. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer, a spiritual, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, help us to see this today. In, in, enlighten our minds. Help us to know you, to know who we are because of you. Not just have this intellectual knowledge, but to enlighten our minds and and illuminate the truth in our heart and even enable us to walk in the way that Peter is calling your people to walk. Just work through your word today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question, who are the people of the new covenant? This isn't just a, a question of who's in and who's out. There is that component of it, right? Who's in and who's out? Who's a new covenant person? Who's not a new covenant person? That, that always gets tied up in this conversation, but it's also an identity question, a who am I or who are we kind of question. Like, who are these people? Not just in determining what the boundaries of the new covenant people are, but also understanding who they are. And on both counts, I think it strikes at a very deep longing of every human heart. We all want connection. I've been watching Star Trek again. Uh, don't ask me why, but just in some spare time, I was turn back onto it, over and over and over. I can't tell you the number of times that, that the, the theme of the show is a desire for connection. The whole reason of going out to begin with, I think, it, it, in, now, now, I know there's some of you that would correct me because I'm not going to quote this properly. Yeah, you're chuckling, I know. <laughs> but the, the whole thing that presses them to go outward is to find out if there's more, right? To be connected with what's out there. It's this theme, this underlying desire to be... So, so even in entertainment, there's a way in which we understand this desire, this human longing for connection, for belonging. I, I, I'm not a... I, I'm, I'm, I'm no fan. Let me say it this way. I'm no fan of all the political identity politics games of always looking for representation and inclusion and all the discussion that goes into that. Don't misunderstand. It's, it's, not, that, it's not that I don't recognize that... That, that there's something there. I, I just The games we play with it and the ways we use one another to our own end for it just is mind-boggling to me that we, would, that we would even begin. But this, this talk about this representation, this inclusion, because we all want to be, we all want to be included. We all want to belong. We all want to be in, right? And then we want to know that we're in because there's others like us on the inside. And so there's all this talk about it. Now, even though I don't appreciate it, I think it reveals this, this, this deep longing, this twofold longing. Am I in or am I out? Do I belong or not? do I not belong? Are there others like me here or not? If there's not, who, who am I then? And we're all fighting for this, and we're, we're turning to all kinds of different, different things for it. it we, we, we'll, we'll settle for pitiful substitutes. We'll settle for horizontal relationship. But this question strikes at the very, very core of our being. Who are the new covenant people? And really the reason it strikes at the core of our being is in some way every one of us claim to be a new covenant person. So I can't flip to a passage, right? We can't look into the New Testament and say, oh, there's the question, here's the answer. But it's all over. 
And Peter's point, all he's saying is helping us see the answer to this question. And, and I would just first answer it in a very simple, I have one, two, three, four, five, six word statement. The new covenant people, not, not counting those words, <laughs> the people of God in Christ. They are the people of God in Christ. From every age, from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. This was God's promise being fulfilled through Jesus Christ to Abraham. Your offspring, the offspring we know that Paul says is Jesus. It is his fulfillment, bringing people from all ages, tribe, tongues, and nation, being blessed in Christ, in the offspring of Abraham. This was God's promise through Jeremiah, as we saw it last week, then fulfilled in Hebrews, Jeremiah 31 through 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. Do you hear that? I will be their God and they shall be my people. The people of God in Christ are the new covenant people. The author of Hebrews shows Christ as the fulfillment of those types and shadows of that previous covenant and shows his covenant fulfilling the promises that Jeremiah made. For this is the covenant that I will make with them. Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Who are the new covenant people? They are the people of God in Christ. Every person who has ever lived, who has ever been born, has been an image bearer of God, but are not immediately a people of God in this way, who can claim God as their God or claim, hold to the claim that they are his people. The new covenant people are the people of God in Christ, and, and, and that's the next thing that needs to be highlighted. All the way through this passage, the whole thing centers on the reality that we are in Christ, that we are what we are, that we are who we are. Because of Christ. He is the faithful covenant partner. He's the one that did the work. He's the one that lives obediently. He's the one that lives faithfully. He's the one that fulfills the law. He's the one that fulfills all the previous promises. He's the one that died and shed his blood so that you and I could enjoy a relationship with God. And praise the Lord that he did. Thank you, Jesus, for doing it. Because I think there might be only one person in the room that actually has a claim to any of the covenants before, at least by lineage. Where are the rest of us? Having to figure out how to get into that line, right? It's not that there wasn't a way in. But how do we make up? In Christ. This is so key. The people of God in Christ. He's the faith. He's the true Israel. He's the one. So, so, so this covenant, this covenant that God is making with the house of Israel, a, a, a defunct nation, a nation that ignored God, is being fulfilled in Christ, the true Israel. Everyone must come in him. Now, that's going to set... Hmm... I, so I'm going to enter into a debate that happens, the broader schools of thought in Christian uh, doctrine and ways people approach the Bible. Um, because what I've said and what I think the scripture shows us here is that there's this one people of God and they are his people in Christ. I think that's absolutely true. And that's the covenantal perspective, the, the classically covenantal perspective. Now, I came across this quote from a guy named Samuel Renahan. It's long. The words will be on the screen behind me. You can, you can follow along as I read it. But I think it's a beautiful explanation from a Reformed Baptist perspective. So he doesn't go full covenant where, where um, like the Presbyterians would baptize their infants because of the, the, the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But he demonstrates this oneness of God's people. The universal church did not begin with Christ and the apostles. It began with Adam and Eve and included Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so many more Israelites who believed the promises of the gospel 
as they were made known through shadows and pictures, through typology. Their experience of salvation was the same as ours, though their knowledge of it was incomplete. The church may have begun outwardly at the death of Christ, above all at Pentecost, but inwardly its people began long before. The church existed before Israel. The church existed in Israel. The church emerged out of Israel. As the womb of Christ, Israel was the womb of the church. The gospel was continuous through them all. And so that sets us as, 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 immediately, if you agree with that, you affirm and recognize, oh man, that's, that's okay, I see how that works biblically, then you're all automatically setting yourself at odds with the idea that there's some distinction between the old covenant and the new, the people of the old covenant and the new covenant people. But I think there is. And see, this is what really sets Reformed Baptists and, and the different brands of that against the Presbyterians and also against the dispensationalists. Because one, we would affirm one people of God from start to finish who have always been, but many would also recognize a distinction between Israel and and the church. In fact, Jesus is the true Israel. Israel itself, the nation, is not a type and shadow for the church, first and foremost. In fact, this is where I think the classic covenantalists would, would make an error and go too far. They would move too quickly to Jesus. And so now, because Jesus is just a direct replacement, we're one in line, there's, there's, there's direct flow from old covenant to new and we take on the laws of the old covenant and I, th I think that there's that that's why they start baptizing babies that's why they would still uh, 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 I won't go into all of it anyway they, they hold a close continuity I think I think there's an error there because we are not the fulfillment of Israel Jesus is Jesus didn't say my people are the true vine did he who's the true vine Jesus is. Who's the bread that came down from heaven? Jesus is. All of these things. That's, that's why I'm referring back to those I am ideas, right? Jesus is the one. Israel is not a type and shadow for the church. Israel is a type and shadow that Christ fulfills. He is the substance of that shadow. And I think that's why when Paul comes to Romans 9 and he's talking about the church being grafted in, they're being grafted not into Israel, the nation, but into the true Israel, Jesus Christ. They are being grafted into that vine. And then he talks about the nation of Israel, the, the line of Israel being grafted back in. Who are they being grafted into? Jesus. This new covenant is a different covenant and it is a new people. This is why I think, at least, why Paul is saying things like in Ephesians 2 that Jesus presents them both to himself as one new man. Because even the nation of Israel is no longer the covenant people of God. They rejected that. We saw that in Hebrews. We saw it in Jeremiah. They rejected it. They failed. God was only faithful to them because the true Israel was coming, and his name is Jesus. And so there is both a continuity, one people of God, who have always been saved in Jesus Christ, and there is a distinct people of God because at one time this nation held a covenant with God, but they couldn't live up to it. And so that covenant was abolished. That's what Hebrews, is. the whole point of Hebrews is it was that was obsolete. Sorry, it wasn't abolished. It says that that covenant is obsolete because the new is better. It supersedes it. So here we are. Who are the new covenant people? I, I think Peter's whole point here. These are people who come to Christ, who are in Christ God's people. Everyone who comes in some other fashion, Jesus is just a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They're crushed by it. They're, they're, they're condemned by him. But everyone who comes in Christ, they are God's people. And some of those, some of us, all the way back to Adam, have lived in faith of God's promises looking forward to Jesus' coming. And those of us today looking back to Jesus. 
Because it has been revealed. So, first and foremost, who are the people? Who are the new covenant people? They are God's people in Christ. I think the next thing we would see, they are the saints who are faithful in Christ. Now look, at, look at what he says. You are, a, you are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And the word is hagios. And, and it's essentially the same word that's used regularly across the New Testament as saint. One who has been made holy. The, the saints who are faithful in Christ. This is what they've been made to be. Not just separated from the world. Not just separated out from the world. But, but really with a view of being consecrated to him. Remember, we're God's people. We're not just a people who are out of the world. We're, we're people who belong to God. But there's a dual fidelity that this passage, and actually the whole letter of 1 Peter demonstrates, is that there's both something that God has done and a responsibility on his people that is absolutely clear. And you can see that truth all the way through every covenant. So even Abraham, when Abraham enters into covenant with God, God cuts the animals, he lays them out. Abraham is ready to walk through those things with God. God puts Abraham to sleep, and in the form of fire and smoke, he passes through the animals. But then we see in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. There's an expectation of the covenant people, and it's true of every covenant, that every people have both the reality that they've been approached and, in, and this covenant's been introduced by God, and they have a responsibility, a, a responsibility to live in accordance with that covenant, to interact with God in light of that covenant. And some of them, you can see it, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Some of them are really clear in this passage. Like there's an expectation for us as God's people in Christ, to, as a people who are saints, who have been made holy by God. This, this, this letter balances those two ideals all the way through. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That means the desires of the person you used to be. Do not be conformed by those desires of your former ignorance. So all the sinful desires that we have, don't be conformed by them anymore. Don't give in to them. Don't let them form you. Don't let them define you. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God has made you holy, so live like it. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. I told you I was going to hit some of these verses because I think it's another letter that we read so often only in terms of modern-day Christianity and trying to define in terms of, of what it is to live a Christian life when really Paul is answering questions about how God's covenant work from start to finish is being fulfilled in Christ and his people. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, to the holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful. It's interesting that he doesn't, he doesn't address this letter to people who just claim the name saint or to people who are just saying, oh, I'm going to strive to live according to these rules. He's writing it to people who have been made holy and who are also striving to live holy. And then as the letter unfolds, it's clearly laid out in two halves. The first half d demonstrates and tells us how we've, we have been made saints, how God's people have been made holy. And the second half shows how faithful people, how they're to live as saints. So the first half, there's not actually a command. There's not an imperative. There's not something to do. In, there's not one imperative stated in the first three chapters. God did this. God did this. God did this. God did this. Chapter 4 starts, therefore, because God did this. Command, 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 command. The whole of the old or the New Testament is is that kind of thing happening over and over. To, to be made a saint is at the same time to live saintly. Like it is, one doesn't go without the other. If a person's been made a saint, they will live saintly. Like we don't create saints. We might give discipleship and we might give instruction. We might help people. That's what these letters are doing. Like so, put away all malice, all deceit. We need that instruction. But it's not a law that we drive into and then we become something. It's because we've been made something. We have these new desires, these new hearts, these new people. 
And we seek to live according to it. Because we actually have a desire for it. That's in contrast to the desires of our former ignorance. Our former ignorance gives itself to malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So hypocrisy is a big one, right? Like we get called hypocrites all the time. And I like to say this, absolutely we are. But we're not hypocritical in this area. We've all confessed, at least as God's people, we are sinners and need a savior. So at least in that area, we're a little less hypocritical than every other person that lives outside the church that's, not, that's also a hypocrite, right? Because that's the conforming of our life to our former ignorance. We just were dumb to it before. We were just blind to it. We just didn't understand how hypocritical we were. But Jesus Christ, having made us new, made us holy, he gives us the ability to see the hypocrisy, to, to recognize and no longer live as hypocrites. So we can't in one breath say, oh, I am completely faithful, and then turn around and live in sin. That's hypocrisy, right? I'm God's man. The only way it's true is it is in Christ. Let's go back to that. I am God's man. And I'm striving every day to grow up in that and to, to mature into that and, and to set aside the desires of my former ignorance, the passions of my former ignorance. I'm striving to apply the instruction that Paul gives in the last half of his letter to live as a blessing to people, to be good to one, to, to, to one another, to, to be a husband that loves my wife like Christ loves the church, to, to be a parent and now a grandparent. They would seek to see my kids and their kids, and hopefully by extension, even their kids and their kids, raised to know the Lord. I strive to be a good employee. I don't have somebody watching over me. But I also strive to be a good pastor that exercises his authority faithfully for the benefit of the people who are called to follow. I think that's true of all of our pastors. But we don't do it perfectly. But we're striving. And that's the distinction. We're ready to admit to you. I'm failing. But we're ready to promise you. We are striving. Setting aside hypocrisy. So who are the people, the, the, the new covenant people? They are the people of God. They are the saints who are faithful in Christ. Who both have been made holy and that becomes evident in their holy lifestyle. It's a both and reality. Third, I would point you to the believers who are blessed in Christ. Oh, man, I love this. I love this. Blessed in Christ. The, the honor are for those who come to Christ. Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. I mean, you just stop and consider the idea of this for just a moment. The God of heaven. You know, the one that you rebelled against most of your life and even struggle rebelling against today is placing honor upon you. Sit in that for a second. I am his child. He adopted me. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness. He has blessed me with every spiritual blessing. We are blessed as we come to Christ, as we move towards him in faith. But those who have rejected him, the text is clear. There's a clear distinction. There's a clear difference. Not everyone who has ever lived, not even everyone who was in the nation of Israel are these people. There are people who looked at Christ, who rejected Christ, who turned their back on Christ, who would not come to Christ. And instead of being built upon Christ, they're going to be crushed by him. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they, they stink. So, so follow this, follow what we've done. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, man, they had a life of abundance. They had, a, they had it all. 
They, they had God's presence. They were his people. It was clear. They walked with him in the cool of the garden. They had every tree in the garden except for one. Abundance. God's presence. Knowledge of him. Knowledge of his will. An understanding of their place and purpose in the world. An understanding of who they were. And on day seven, God, after creating the man and woman, rests. And what's beautiful about that passage, we didn't deal with it heavily there, but what's beautiful about that passage is all the other six days end. This is morning and evening, the first day. Morning and evening, the second day. Morning and evening, the third day. And then you come to day seven, and it doesn't end. It doesn't tell us of an ending. God rested, and Adam and Eve were living in the abundance, in the rest that God had created until... They sin. Do you remember what happened when they sinned? Toil. So God uses the word for toil as he speaks to the woman, toil in having and raising children. God speaks to the man, toil in, in working the ground and getting food. Toil, hard work, a, a lack of rest. And then he exiles them from the garden. And then every other covenant after that is God moving slowly, but deliberately and purposefully unfolding the plan that he has, a plan for the fullness of time to unite everything in heaven and on earth so that, so that God's people are with God in a very direct way again. But over and over, these promises seemingly similar. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I'm going to give them a place to live. I'm going to get, provide for their needs. I am going to give them abundance. And where do we find that abundance? In coming to Christ, being built upon Christ. So who are the new, new, new covenant people? They are God's people in Christ. They are the saints who are faithful in Christ. They are the believers who are blessed in Christ. They are the elect who are redeemed in Christ. Chosen, a, a chosen race, but down in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Chosen. Now, lots of people struggle with the idea of God's election of his people, but again, as you read through the covenants, God was always choosing his covenant people. Did Adam get a choice in being God's covenant person, like his first representative for all mankind? Nope. God just determined it. Did Noah get a choice to find favor with God? And Nope. Noah didn't. I, I, I'm assuming that Noah didn't just one morning wake up and say, God, you know, I got a plan. Why don't you flood the earth? I'll build an ark and I'll take my family on it. And God's like, ooh, that sounds like a great idea. Let me make it mine. So everybody agrees and thinks, nope. It's not how it worked at all. God so grieved by sin chose Noah from among all the people to build this ark. Moses, Abraham, Israel, David, every one of them chosen by God. Why would we think in any, why, why would we begin to wrestle with the idea that God is a choosing God? He's always been choosing his people. This, this letter, it doesn't just mention it here, but Peter's idea and understanding of election starts from the very outset. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. Elect, the ones chosen. That's the same idea. It's the same word. To those who are elect, exiles of dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And it's debated whether he's talking about Jerusalem's dispersion or whether he's talking about the dispersion of the church that happened back in Acts chapter uh, uh, 7. But why would he be writing a Christian letter to an Israelite nation that has rejected Christ? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. This idea of election is, is all the way through. Paul presents this picture of election as a blessing bestowed on his people by God. Ephesians 1, 3, 3, 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing. Everyone. Not some, not a little bit. Everyone. Back into this world of abundance, right? In, in the heavenly places. Even as he chose, uh, even as he elected us in him before the foundation of the world. 
Now, there's lots of people that are going to try to insert some ideas about why he chose, and I can't go there because the text doesn't say it. I'm not going to assume it. I don't know why God chose or what, what was the basis. I think his nature spoke to it. But I, don't, I, I, I can't get on board with people who would suggest that he chose before the foundation of the world based on who he would know would believe. Paul is presenting this idea of election as a blessing of God, not as something we deserve because we've done something to get it. It's God's blessing. So the elect, right, the chosen, but chosen for what? Chosen for mercy, to receive God's mercy. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We get to live in his marvelous light, not darkness. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you weren't a people, but now you're a people. That's what we get. We're chosen for this reality to be these people. Who are we? We're God's chosen people. We're his elect who he redeemed, who he brought out of darkness and into marvelous light, who he put mercy upon or gave mercy to. We all deserve judgment. Another, another verse in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse, around, right around verse 3, speaks about the fact that by nature, by nature, not by choice, not by election, but by nature, we were all children of wrath. We all deserved judgment. We all deserved wrath. We all deserved exile, condemnation, toil. We all deserved that. But he withheld it. He took that judgment from us. He, he took that, that, that wrath from us. He, he, he took the toil from us. What did Jesus say? All who are weary, come to me. And I will give you rest. Chosen. Chosen for what? We are the elect who are redeemed, who have received his mercy, who have been brought out of darkness and into marvelous light. The last thing I would point you to out of this passage about who are the people of the new covenant is that we are the royal priesthood who represent and reflect Christ. Peter opens this passage with a call to live differently, differently than you used to and differently than the world around you. Put away, be done with it. All malice, hard, uh, uh, a desire to bring harm to other people, all deceit, living a lie, pretending you're saying something with your mouth that's not true, all hypocrisy, pretending you're something you're not, envy, wanting what other people have, maybe even to the point that you would take it, slander, telling others what, that, telling other people, making other people believe lies about another person. Instead, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, right? So he's given this, this you, you, want it, long for it, desire it. He's trying to set, set, set us up to realize. He's not, he's not doing what, what the author of Hebrews did in, in making a comparison between milk and meat. He's saying that this is what gives us life. This is what gives us growth. Long for that pure spiritual milk that we might grow in, up into salvation, that we might mature so he's calling us away from these things and calling us to this. He follows this passage with a, with a, similar, expo, a, 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 a similar call. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Oh, you mean those, those, those uh, desires of our former ignorance? Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How many times have you heard in recent weeks, months, maybe over the last couple of years, that to believe the truth of Christianity in light of common popular cultural perspectives Everything from sexual identity to gender identity to parenting to marriage to, to um, governments and uh, just about everything that you can think of has been touched on uh, ide ideas of race and gender. 
In how many cases has the church been accused of being on the wrong side of history? Being said to be doing evil, doing harm to people. How many times have Christians been called out for saying true things, even in love, and yet being told that they are harming or hurting people? Even though they're calling you evil, you keep doing the good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the role of the royal priesthood. To reflect and represent Christ, isn't that exactly what he did? They didn't want him. They sought to stone him because he was blasphemous. He claimed to be God. Who are you? He forgave sin. Who are you? They blamed it. They accused him of using the power of the devil to do the miracles that he did. They called him evil, even if they never actually pointed it out and said, you are evil. They were calling him evil in all of their responses and actions towards him. As we do this, it's not just about us doing this and making a name for ourselves and standing out. In fact, if the point is to just stand out and be different, then that's more about you than being about him. This is to the glory of God who Jesus made his whole life about. I came to see my father glorified. The royal priesthood who represent and reflect the glory of Christ and in so doing glorify God the Father who proclaim his excellencies who make just how beautiful and majestic and, 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 and amazing it is to be in Christ who make it known in their word who live lives that model him who, who was not a man of malice who was not a man of deceit who was not a man of hypocrisy who was not a man of envy who was not a man of slander these are attributes of Christ. That's what he's calling us to. So that when people see us, they see a representation and a reflection of the one who saved us and the only one who can save them. Well, what if they reject you? What if they call you evil? That's not your business. Your business is to represent and reflect him. Your business is to proclaim his excellencies to the glory of God the Father. Well, what if they don't like me? That's not your business. I've used this illustration a lot. I've been talking to people about our community groups, and I use this illustration a lot because there's a way in which sometimes it feels like it, the idea of being missional means that we're always actively doing something, and we should be seeking to actively engage around us. Don't misunderstand. But isn't our presence by itself, when people understand what we're doing, a statement in and of itself? So for, I don't know how many years before, we, we just recently moved our community group because the we, logistical issues. We just recently moved our community group to John and Shara's house and had been meeting in mine for years and years. Um, and every Wednesday, I, I, get, I have conversations with people in my neighborhood about it. Every Wednesday, we block the street and we are a pain in my neighborhood's neck. As I pulled up to uh, John's and Shara's house this week, I recognized, oh, their neighbors are not going to be happy about this over time. <laughs> but they know, what we're, they know what we're doing. In fact, one, one year we went out, we were caroling around the neighborhood, and, and uh, people across the street came over and knocked on the, the house on our door. None of us were there except for Ken and Linda. They were watching the kids as we went out and caroled, the smaller kids. They come over to our door, hey, there's people caroling in the neighborhood. We think you'll love this because we're singing about Jesus. They didn't recognize that we were the ones out there doing it. But they knew, the people across the street knew we're there every week having Bible study, talking about Jesus, pointing each other to Christ. We've talked to them about it. My neighbors know about it. The, the, the people across the street, the people down the street, they know what we're there for. And, and, and I got to think, I was like, you know, isn't it... As many times as we've had people ask questions, as many times as we've had people engage and, and talk about it and think that they were going to come in, we had, had somebody from the neighborhood visit for a little bit. We've never seen the fruit of it that I'd love to see. I'd love to see our community group blow up and Christians, I'd love to live in that neighborhood and see people falling on their face before Christ and seeking forgiveness and us baptizing them to the glory of the Father, all that stuff. I mean, that's amazing to me. I, I long for that. But I got to thinking about it. 
Every time I see a cop, what do I do? Am I going the right speed? My tag's right. Oh, gosh, did I forget? No, no, okay, okay. Just his presence makes a difference. He didn't have to write me a ticket. He didn't have to pull me over. Just his presence. So us going out, reflecting and representing Christ. I'm not saying we should not talk. We should speak, proclaim his excellencies. Let's make it clear. But they should know who we are by what we say and by what we do because we are the royal priesthood to represent and reflect Christ over and over. I just want to point this out over and over. Each of these points have demonstrated both who we've been made and what we're to do in responsibility of it or, or in response to it or what we've received because of it. Who we've been made to be and who we, what we are to do because of it or what we've received in it. But it's all wrapped up in Christ. We are the people of God in Christ. So who are the people of the new covenant? The people of God in Christ. Saints who are faithful, believers who are blessed, the elect who are redeemed, and a royal priesthood who are reflections and representations of Jesus Christ himself. So there's been all kinds of ways that you could apply this. I've sought to do that all the way through, but I want to ask this final question as we close this out. So what? Why does it matter that I know that today? By, by knowing him and being found in him, by recognizing who you are in Christ, we can have this confidence. We are blessed. He has called us his own. He has given himself to us. I will be their God and they will be my people. He, he has called us. We, you are mine, he says, and I am yours, he says. He has given himself to us. We are blessed, period, end of story. Like there's nothing more. Even if we don't have all we could have, even if we don't have all we want to have, even if we don't have what others have, what has he held back from us? Everything we need for life and godliness, blessed with every spiritual blessing, When we don't understand who we are and what we've received because of who we are, we still live as if we're in a world of scarcity rather than abundance. Do you believe that you have been abundantly blessed in Christ? You absolutely have. Absolutely have. But it also helps us know what we do. We know what to do. He's written his law in our hearts, Jeremiah says, Hebrews tells us. It may require some discipleship. It may require us seeing the commands. It may require someone ahead of us, more mature than us, pointing us to the commands and giving us some instruction to help us see how to apply the reality that we are holy. It may require someone to help us in that, in growing up and maturing, just like a child needs a parent, a a new Christian, a young Christian, a beginning Christian needs someone ahead of them, more mature than them, to point out issues and to point them to truth that they might know how to live because of who they are. But this is never the way to become something. And so not only do we know what to do as we come to this reality and understanding who we are and and that we belong because we are in Christ, not only do we know what to do, we know what not to do. So we don't have to earn our place. You are not more loved because you put away malice, envy, hypocrisy, deceit, slander. You are as loved and blessed as you will ever be in Christ. But for you to know the fullness of that joy, if you know to, to, for, for you to experience the greatest sense of that grace upon you, that blessing of abundance upon you, the call is to live this way. But it's not a work to earn. It's a work because we've been given. But we also know not to join the world in their silly games of seeking identity in purpose in things like gender, race, social standing, rich and poor. It's not that these distinctions don't matter. I mean, they're, they're real. They're true. I was talking to somebody the other day and 
she was going through this list of things with me and talking about the differences between male and female physiology. And it's just true. Right? It's just true. But it's not the defining factor anymore. I'm not a man Christian. I'm a Christian who's a man. I'm not a white Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be peach. Right? I, I mean... I'm not a Christian who's, I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to live in America. And one of the weaknesses of not knowing who we are as God's covenant people is we've walked around saying, I'm white Christian, I'm black Christian, I'm male Christian, I'm female Christian, I'm rich Christian, I'm poor Christian, I'm whatever. This kind of Christian. No, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. I'm talking about it on the way here this morning. The problem, starting with all of those identifiers as the foundation of us, means that in some way, as a man, I can't speak to a woman. You want to know what I think about that? I can't say it. But I don't agree with it. Let me say it like that. It stinks. It's a lie. I can speak to women about being in Christ. You know how? Because we all need the same thing. When you get right down to it, all the individuality that we've tried to spread out between young and old, rich and poor, white, black, all of it comes down to the same reality. The only solution is Jesus. You may not agree with me, but I'd encourage you to test that against the scripture and tell me it's not true. We are in Christ. And so finally, we can rest. Rest. Trust. He's got this. He's, it's going to be, I'm going to get where I'm supposed to go. I'm stumbling along. I'm fighting. I feel the war within me. But I'm going to make it. Because he made it. And he's getting me there. And Christ, I am his people, and he will not let me go. In Christ, you are his people, and he will not let you go. But if you are not in Christ, there is no other hope. There's no other promise. There's no other way. If you are not in Christ, the the, the cornerstone that the builders rejected will become a stumbling stone. And on it, you will fall and you will be crushed. Let's pray.